Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. Queer in the Air would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, true owners, custodians and caretakers of this land on which this program is created and produced. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Like most communities, 3CR staff, programmers and volunteers are working remotely and producing their shows from home for the time being due to COVID-19. So some things will sound different as some programmers will present or produce their shows on the phone, via online platforms or other creative methods. But we are still here, giving you up-to-date, radical, alternative and critically engaged content 24-7 during this time. You're listening to Queer in the Air, critically engaged queer commentary with an interest on the intersection of queerness with other experiences of marginalisation. The show is presented by peers on the LGBTIQA plus spectrum. Follow us via Facebook and Twitter via the handle Queer in the Air and listen to our podcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash Queer in the Air. My name is MV. Today's episode of Queer in the Air was produced and recorded in a substitute workspace in my home in Nam, Melbourne. I also want to take the opportunity to acknowledge the injustices currently happening in America and the protests in relation to the recent death of George Floyd. Many revolutions throughout history have been started by violence. People get hurt and killed. Property gets damaged. There are many examples of when courageous and outraged people stood up for the same basic rights and freedoms that privileged white people enjoy. The Stonewall Uprising of 1969 was five days of rioting and looting. The riots were led by queer people of colour. The riots were violently repressed by the police and followed decades of violence and killings from the police. The Sydney Mardi Gras in 1978 began as a commemoration of the Stonewall riots and was a protest against police bashings. During National Reconciliation Week, remember that over 420 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have died in police custody since 1991 as a result of continued colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy and neoliberalism. In 2019, at least 26 deaths of transgender or gender non-conforming people in the US died due to fatal violence the majority of whom were black transgender women. To date, in 2020, there have been at least 12 transgender or gender non-conforming people fatally shot or killed by other violent means. We need a revolution. We need to take part, and that revolution is being led by those on the streets and at rallies. We call for justice both here in Australia, in Minneapolis, and for its freedom fighters. Stop black deaths in custody. Black lives matter. Black trans lives matter. Get informed, become involved, 
and get more information on this resistive movement at Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. Follow them via the Facebook handle at WAR Collective. If these events are distressing, and if you need to talk to someone, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au. Switchboard Victoria on 1800 184 527 or switchboard.org.au or contact your state-based service. On today's program, you'll hear a conversation I conducted with Ava Amedi, a writer, musician and artist. He works across songwriting, artist interview, performance, poetry and non-fiction writing genres. Key to his work is a desire to deliver effective experiences to audiences. We discuss Arva's arts practice and influences, notions on cultural criticism in his writing, his recent Testing Grounds residency, pop music in the context of accessibility and accountability, and discussions on effectual modes of conversation. Here is the first part of our conversation. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital, and streaming via 3cr.org.au. My name's Ava Remedi. I'm a writer, performer, and a musician. I'm really interested in the creative work that I produce, in creating really affecting and uh, visceral experiences for audiences who witness my work. An example of that kind of visceral experience is pop music that I write. I'm really interested in pop music. I'm really interested in nonfiction styles of writing. Uh, across cultural criticism, some memoir, and I am also really interested in performing across uh, interviewing people myself, uh, music performance, acting, and I'm also interested in video games and technology. But those two things really impact a lot of the creative work that I do. And most importantly, of course, is my uh, skipping obsession that has really flourished in this quarantine experience from the last couple of months. I find myself on YouTube videos all the time watching like great skipping techniques and really cool um, things like that that prove just how, you know, effortless and culturally cool i truly am <laughs> that's me so let's let's skip right into it then ava what i'd really like to know is more about the concept or the notion of cultural criticism what is it and how does it form part of your arts practice in relation to influences ideas materials cultural identity and and so on Sure. Cultural criticism is a often a written format of exploring the way the world uh, works, specifically in relation to the way that people work. Uh, one example of cultural criticism is, say, in a let's say that you're listening, reading a review of a uh, album. And the person who has written the review puts that album in the larger context of what is happening in culture generally and the way that that music album relates to culture in general. An example that can be really broadly understood is Beyonce's Lemonade album and all of the writing and creative responses that came from that album as a piece of uh 
as a piece of culture and also as a piece of art. So cultural criticism is different from something like, say, an academic style of writing in that, for me at least, what I really like about cultural criticism compared to, say, a a piece of writing about, you know, sociology or something from an academy is that the writing of cultural criticism is really close to the lived experience of living in the world. When someone writes a piece of cultural criticism, they, I think my favorite pieces of cultural criticism in a lot of ways actually make me feel a really intimate connection with the pieces of culture that are being explored in that piece. I have always uh, loved conversations with close friends and with people that I respect. And that is one of the main ways that I've come to develop my ideas about how the world works and my ideas about creativity and the creative concepts that I've produced. They've all come from conversations with really close friends of mine and, as I mentioned, people that I respect. Cultural criticism is kind of like having that kind of intimate conversation with someone on the page. Uh, It's a very specific and quite fantastic type of writing, a really fantastic type of media because cultural criticism is not just in media. It's in YouTube videos and vlogs and bits and pieces like that. One really fantastic example of cultural criticism is uh, the work by an author. Her name is Gia Tolentino. She is currently a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine. The way that cultural criticism has affected me and the way that I see the world is that those intimate conversations that I've had with friends and those intimate conversations that I've had with pieces of cultural criticism, essays and work have really reflected back to me who I want to be and how I want to live my life. I think that's how cultural criticism has really uh, shaped and changed who I am as a person. So on that, Ava, you did mention one of the writer's that you were reading whilst you were on your testing grounds residency. And in particular, during your blog, you mentioned the writings of Gia Tolentino, who you've just mentioned now, who writes on the notion of cultural criticism. And you also stated that cultural criticism and nonfiction are central to your writing and, and so forth. How does it inform your creative work. And I'd also like to know more about these intimate conversations that you've had with your friends as as you describe it. So in October of 2019 through to May of 2020, I was really fortunate to complete my first ever artist residency at an artist studio space called Testing Grounds, which is set just behind the Art Centre in Nam, Melbourne. During that time, Amongst the many different things that I did on site, I was reading a lot of cultural criticism, different essays and books of cultural criticism. One of those books was a uh, book called Trick Mirror by an author called Gia Tolentino, and I really enjoyed reading the entire book. The book spans things from weddings to the nature of the internet to ecstasy to scamming. It's a whole bunch of different stuff. I wrote during the residency that cultural criticism and nonfiction is becoming really essential to the type of writing that I do. And what I mean by that is that for me, cultural criticism is really pushing me to try to explain the way of the world in a way that puts people 
in a really intimate conversation with me and my authorial voice. So I'm really trying to make people sit next to me and have a really visceral and emotional experience through the things and the concepts that I'm trying to talk about and talk through. Cultural criticism pushes me to communicate meaning about the way that the world works in a way that is accessible, in a way that is readable, and in a way that makes the audience feel and be put in the situation that I want them to be put in to understand the kinds of ideas that I'm telling them. When I have had intimate conversations in the past with friends and people that I really admire, I feel not only do I come to understand, you know, maybe really complicated ideas and concepts, I come to understand those complicated ideas and concepts in a way that is really emotional. I understand them intellectually, but I also physically feel as though I am engaging with those ideas in a really tangible way, whether those are ideas of something like pop music, whether those are ideas of something like racism or a particular piece of pop culture. Cultural criticism has me trying to be in conversation with an audience and bring them on a journey that is really emotional as well as intellectual and tries to sit them in the center of the world to try to make them understand the world in a way that is not only really cerebral and brain heavy, you know, I try to make writing that makes you feel knowledge as well as understand knowledge in your head. So you say it's like an emotional experience. So expressing these ideas or engaging in these types of conversation elicits an emotional response for you. What is that like when you are dealing with quite head heavy information and topics and discussions, but you're also having an emotional response to it? What does that feel like? Something that I've recognized over the last couple of years is that for me to really understand something, I not only need to understand it in my head, but I also need to, for lack of a better term, I kind of need to understand it in my heart. I need to have a conversation between my brain and my body more generally uh, together as one to really come into understand meaning. What that feels like for me, for example, when I'm listening to a piece of music that is really engaging and whose writing that I think is really good is uh, a feeling of real joy. And that joy comes from understanding what I think the artist in Evolved was trying to make me feel at the time. What it feels like for me to both understand, you know, really heavy, conceptually heavy ideas in my brain and in my body, it feels like I am there with the artist or with the writer and I'm in direct communication with that person. If I'm consuming something that's really joyful, I experience that joy in a really physical manner. I feel the joy kind of move through my body, move through my chest, move through my head and understand that. If it's sadness, I feel it all over as well. If it is something difficult and sad and painful, I feel it in that same way. And once I come to understand and feel those feelings, I can from that point move to action or response or critical engagement with those ideas. 
it's such a visceral response to have that connection between the mind and the heart. My follow-up question is to dig deeper into this conversation. So yes, you've engaged in your seven-month residency at Testing Grounds, and at that time you produced a series of live intimate scales interviews with artists. I fortuitously came across your work when you held these series of talks at Testing Grounds in January of 2020, and you were speaking with Roberta Joy Rich about the constructions of race and gender identity. So there's a few questions I'd like for you to address, and namely they are, what was the approach? Why did you go down that pathway in formulating those questions? What interest there was for you? And how did it develop your ongoing practice? The main project that I worked on during my artist residency at Testing Grounds was a artist interview series called Where Are You Now? There were five interviews across the six-month period of my residency. What these interviews were, they were intimate scale live interviews, often in front of a small audience with a bunch of different artists. And the main question that I wanted to get to with people was, where are you now in your art practice? I wanted to allow artists an opportunity to sit back not have to be too media ready and too polished in their discussion of their ideas and of where they stood and just have a conversation about the things that they're interested in, why they are making the kind of work that they're making and where they stand now in their lives and in their art practices. The interest that I had for doing that was one, I, the interviews that I enjoy the most across you know, the written medium, whether they're audio interviews, whether they're video interviews, and I find people that I think are interesting on YouTube, is that kind of intimate style of uh, conversation. I also think that artists are often expected to speak in incredibly PR-ready and media-ready terms at all times for potential audiences when they're talking about their work. Often interviews are hyper-transactional because, you know, it's understandable. Everybody has a thing, you know, they've spent a lot of time on a certain project. They need to often be financially stable based off of that project. So they have to hit their points and have the interview, you know, ABC, these are the points that I have to hit and have that kind of transactional conversation. It's a really understandable thing. My art residency, there wasn't an explicit financial motivation for it. It was more of an artistic development. I was able to have a much more fluid and wandering style of conversation that allowed people to kind of breathe a little easier when they were talking about their art practices. That was one of the major interests for me when it came to speaking with people. In terms of myself, one major interest for me was really uh, practicing the art of interviewing and getting better at it, you know, practicing logistics around interviews, practicing what it means to have a residency and figure out all of those little bits and pieces. There was a lot of professional and creative development that I gained from doing that project. The reason why I went down the pathway that I did for the specific questions that I asked across the five different interviews. And these interviews were done with authors like Chi Tran, installation artists like the artist Roberta Joy Rich, filmmakers Paul Gorey, 
and choreographers like Ogendi Ude. And the reason why I asked specific questions and went down specific pathways with different people was because they would respond to my initial questions in a particular way. And as a result, I would start to shape you know, the kind of questions that I was asking as the interviews advanced. So, for example, Chi Tran is a poet and their responses to my questions were so detailed and considered and, you know, uh, kind of like fine machinery. So I really try to anchor my questions in a way that allowed their machinery to be shown. Roberta Joy Rich's practice is really conceptually rigorous and there is a really strong intersection between academic rigor and community access to their work. So I try to ask questions that really brought the best in everyone. The way that it developed my practice above all was that I was able to really grow, I feel, closer to an understanding of what makes a good interview. That's the number one thing that it did for my creative practice. And I'm really happy that the project happened. And I I hope everybody looks forward to future developments for this Where Are You Now project because there will be some announcements to be made a little bit later this year about where the project is going next. So I'm also really excited for that. You're listening to 3CR Radio. You just stated that one of the, the main things for you in your development was investigating how you approach these conversations, how you approach these discussions. What did you find was the main thing that made an interview a good interview? As I've mentioned, what's been really important to me in my overall creative development has been conversations with friends and mentors and creative people whose work I really admire. And what's been really fantastic about those conversations, what's made those conversations really fruitful is something called tempo matching, where I match the tempo and energy of the person that I'm speaking to, and that person matches my tempo and energy. You know, we can engage in conflict and care and agreement and exploration in a way that's really symbiotic, that is really has us connecting in a really intimate way. With Where Are You Now, I had to take that tempo matching and put it in an interview formalized kind of situation. So what I had to do was, was not only did I have to tempo match the person I was interviewing, I had to tempo match the audience that was listening as well. I had to make sure that the audience was coming with us on that journey. So what Where Are You Now really taught me was to bring the intimacy of those one-on-one conversations I've had with friends in the past and connect it with being the leader in a conversation, not only between myself and the person I'm interviewing, but with the whole audience. So to bring the audience into that conversation, bringing the audience along could be making sure that I'm communicating all the little details properly so that the audience is abreast of what it is that we're discussing. Or trying to channel the emotional energy of the room and try to put that into the types of questions that I'm asking and the way that I'm communicating with the person that I'm interviewing. Where Are You Now has taught me that part of what makes a good interview is leading the conversation in a way that brings the audience along, brings their emotions along, as well as producing intimacy between myself and those that I'm talking to directly one-on-one. 
that was so obvious in your conversation with Roberta Joy Rich in January, that intimacy and the ease and also the connection that you were making with your guest and the audience was really evident. You can totally understand the notion of tempo matching in those conversations. So hats off to you. I'd like to change gears a little bit and just reflect back on a project you did about a year ago. You produced a track, Seatbelt, for the Emerging Writers Festival. And the tagline says, where pop methods and AI interactions meet. What's that about? In 2019, I was a participant in the Emerging Writers Festival here in Nam, Melbourne. And I was asked to produce a response to the idea of the future and futurity. So I decided to write a song. Uh, and this song took on a lot of elements of pop music, you know, really clear melody, a precise story through the lyrics. This song was called Seatbelt and was produced and developed by Riley at Eximat Records. Eximat Records is a local record label collection of artists that specifically work in the realm of hip hop. And it was really awesome to work with them and you should definitely check them out. And it was one of my very first attempts to really formalize and put into practice a lot that I had been thinking about and reading about how pop music works. The tagline of the song that I produced called Seatbelt was where pop music and AI interactions meet. What I meant by that was part of the song is me literally using uh, a voiceover assistant on a computer to recite lyrics back to me at the end of the song. And I was wanting to fuse this really quite a tangible idea of non-human and really electronic communication because the audio voiceover in the track really sounds quite non-human. And I wanted to connect that with the ideas around pop writing and pop music that I was really interested in. So the story is about a kid in a car and is driving down a valley in a car with two adults in the front. And eventually this kid throws themselves out of the window. A little bit of drama, I think, is always very important in pop music. And the song ends with this artificial intelligence saying quite disarming and stressful words. I was really just trying to produce as much emotional reaction within this quite confined two-minute song. And the AI ends speaking in Behdini Kurdish, which is a dialect of Kurdish that I speak. All of those little bits and pieces, all of those things that I was thinking about at the time, whether it was the structure of pop music, the nature of artificial intelligence, the nature of artificial intelligence when it specifically comes to speaking non-English languages, all of those different bits and pieces came together in this piece, Seatbelt. So in that sense, it is, as the tagline says, a collision of pop music and AI interactions. You've just listened to the first part of my conversation with Avra Medi, where we discuss his interest in cultural criticism and how it affects his arts practice and his artist interview series, transactional conversations, and the beginning discussions on pop music methods. 
Stay tuned for the second part of our conversation, where we continue this conversation to unpack ideas about pop music in relation to its significance in pop culture, and to discuss his written works, paintings and pop, and two twins. But first, this is his track, Seatbelt, that he produced for the 2019 Emerging Writers Festival with Riley from X Amount Records. You're listening to Query in the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital and streaming via 3cr.org.au. My name is Ava Emedi. Pop methods and AI interactions meet in Seatbelt, my piece, to tell a kind of story. Considerations of real, digital and future selves live in the choices that made the piece sound the way it does. Biblical sun bears down On a car winding through Suburban forestry And the radio man Says he'll impeach me He will impeach me I am cruising on the sea Replaces voice with strings Three thousand in fact was starting, I think what we've seen that any pre-existing inequality and discrimination was actually really heightened during the pandemic. For LGBTQ people seeking asylum, the differences were in the fact that as any other asylum seekers, they are on bridging visas. And it is really difficult to find employment on the bridging visa. A lot of LGBTQ people seeking asylum are not eligible for Medicare. And so in situations before when they were able to work and had any specific medical needs, now there was no jobs anymore. People seeking asylum are not eligible for any government income support. and so. For many, that meant that they cannot meet their health needs at all. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 
a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. If you just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital and live streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. My name is MV. During the break, you just heard the track Seatbelt, written by Ava Amedi and produced by Riley from X Amount Records. In the second part of my conversation with Ava Amedi, we speak about pop music in relation to its significance in pop culture and its somewhat problematic nature, and discuss his written works Paintings and Pop, and Two Twins. So let's discuss pop music in relation to its significance in pop culture in so many ways. For example, memes, the way it's marketed, the proliferation of it on the internet, the way it delves into people's personal lives so it takes it away from the music. So let's unpack that in a few different ways. What are the characteristics of the genre? What defines pop music? And... What underlying issues lie within the genre and its appeal? Pop music is a really vast and complicated subject. What I like to do when I'm looking to define something so big and something so nebulous and uh, difficult to pin down is I like to uh, describe what I identify as pop music. That leaves space for a much broader amount of interpretations that sit alongside my own interpretation of pop music. Part of what I think is essential to pop music is structure. Pop music is often operating in really rigid limits. So it's often, you know, it's a minimum two minutes, three minutes, three minutes and 30 seconds. That's the maximum amount of time that a pop song generally goes for. The music is often highly produced, given that a lot of pop music at the professional level is some of the most expensive music to make. Uh, it takes a lot of infrastructure across producers, labels, music industry, bits and pieces to make you know that big pop album that everybody knows. I think that it's a very disciplined type of music writing to work in because you really need to hit your goal within a really specific and constrained time frame. Those time frames and those constrictions I think are a really interesting and enjoyable challenge. I really love succinct communication. I hope to communicate as succinctly as possible. I think that pop music by nature is the very heart of a highly deregulated and highly hierarchical music industry. The music industry, no one gets paid except for very few people. Uh, It's grossly inequitable and it is also 
a siphon of talents from very specific communities of people who are often not the people who get to make money off of the creativity that they're producing. Uh, the cornerstone of pop music is different black cultures, specifically black cultures in North America, who produce aesthetics and sound and musics and motifs and fashions. And the producers of that work are often not the recipients, either the funds or the cultural crochet, the profits that come from producing that kind of work. So it's a grossly inequitable economic system that a large variety of, I would say, all of the art world is uh, entrenched in. It's a very difficult terrain. And it is the site of some really beautiful, amazing, restorative, regenerative work at the same time. It's a, yeah, it's a mixture of really difficult, complicated bits and pieces. And so for you, what do you feel are the most problematic issues that lie within the genre itself? I think that because of the inequities that I've illustrated about the music industry, there is a whole bunch of problematic stuff across that particular section of the art world. And in that problematic nature is the opportunity for response and critical engagement. I think that there is a big opportunity to learn histories and cultures uh, that have contributed to making pop music what it is. I think there's there's the opportunity for all artists to have a conversation with themselves and with each other away from actually producing work to say, what's my relationship with this history, this culture, what this thing is, and how can I take account in my creative practice to honour that history and knowledge and also try to produce something new and take responsibility for the fact that you stand on the shoulders of communities of people that you may not be a part of or uh, you may be engaging with genres of music that, that have their own history, that come from a specific experience. It's about respectfully and diligently engaging with history and culture and it comes back to trying to understand and know the nature of music and art in a way that's both in your head and in your body so that you can try to take steps forward in making work that is responsible. To make it really short and succinct, pop music and pop music aesthetics have come from a variety of Black cultures and non-Black people of colour, for example. The question is, how do you produce work, produce music, produce things, and also take accountability for that reality. And it's an entire world. How do you take responsibility for all of that? And one of the first steps that I think that it takes to engage with that problematic nature is doing something called reflexivity, which is about people thinking about their position in the world in relation to the music industry and in relation to the cultures and histories that have informed uh, various genres of music. So what it takes to engage with the problematic nature of the music industry is to sit, listen, and learn and take steps from there, uplifting everyone alongside you to help people get there to their artistic aims. And that is the very first step. The overall answer is really complicated and sinewy. The people who deserve to be making the profit are often not the people who are able to receive compensation for their work so it's about it's about those steps and it's about trying every day and it's a continual process yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. The narrative is ever-changing, yet it needs to acknowledge its roots, where it's evolved from to ensure that it doesn't silence or erase its predecessors. You're listening to 3CR Radio. I'd like to draw attention to another work that you wrote in 2018, Paintings and Pop, and this was part of a collective of writing for 2018's Doubting Writing, Writing Doubt. This is one particular line that really stood out to me, and I'm just going to read it out. It says, Its allure is its central challenge, to affect audiences within tight constraints of runtime, catchy hooks, and lyrics that marry specific detail with themes that feel universal, overwhelming emotions used to draw something hyper-real. This is something that you wrote. And in the editorial, just to give it some context, it says that arts writing often seems like a churn of content produced to oil the machinery of various economies. And it also mentions vulnerability in terms of destabilizing categories of normality and countering homogeny. In paintings and pop, for you, what were you trying to express in these words? I wrote a piece called Paintings and Pop for the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. This was part of a writing program called Doubt in Writing slash Writing Doubt that was a response to an exhibition that ACA put on called On Vulnerability and Doubt. In the exhibition, there was a set of, I would say it was five paintings by an artist named Ambera Wellman. They were oil paintings and they were squares. They were quite small but they were these paintings of really fluid figures mixing and meshing in between each other. And they were presented in this way that reminded me of a pop song. So the article that I was writing was really about linking this artist and Barrow Wellman's paintings with what I thought pop music was about. I interspersed the article with uh, lyrics, some tweets that I had read at the time that I thought were really present and relevant, and a recording of a performance that I did in Acker itself of the pop lyrics that you can find interspersed throughout the article. Paintings and pop is something that I'm really proud of. It had me really trying to, as much as possible, make people feel like they were looking at this painting and also recognize the ways that that painting was in many ways a pop song, which I thought was really cool. I really like these paintings, <laughs> hence why I uh, was writing about them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy to see why Ambera Wellman's work would mobilize you in writing your piece, Paintings and Pop, mostly because the works are both fluid and streamlined in nature. It's so incredible. Another one of your writings that I'd like to discuss is Two Twins, and this is something that you did for Unmagazine 13.1, and in it you had comparisons between the Victory Arches and the Twin Towers, where you speak of kitsch ethics can uncover nefariousness hidden behind this knowledge, prompting action. How does this relate to one another, and what is kitsch ethics? Kitsch ethics is an idea that I propose in my article, Two Twins for On Magazine 13.1. In the article, I say the aesthetic and ethical dimensions of an object fuse together and create new meaning through the adoption of each other's characteristics. So what are the characteristics of Saddam Hussein's victory arches? They are quite tacky in their presentation, as I described in the article. They're quite flimsy. 
um, and they're a bit embarrassing, which is a really common trait for art that is produced in a way that aggrandizes a dictator. It's a very common thing that you see in state-created art for a dictator, uh, that kitsch. What are the characteristics of the ethical component of Saddam Hussein's Twin Arches? Well, the Twin Arches were designed to say that Saddam Hussein is really great, that everything Saddam Hussein is doing is fantastic. He is a valiant and strong leader, and he is really awesome. So that morality, the nature of the morality of these arches are actually quite similar to the kitsch of the object itself. The object is aesthetically quite tacky, and as a result, the morality that is proposed by the object of Saddam being really fantastic is also quite tacky and unstable and unfavorable. The morality is taking on the components of kitsch, and the kitsch object itself is proposing those those ethics. So it's about marrying ethics and aesthetics of a kitsch object together. Wow, it's such an incredible commentary on this term kitsch ethics in the way that it describes the correlation of the victory archers and the twin towers. So finally, what's next? Firstly, you mentioned that your Testing Grounds interview series, Where Are You Now?, will be presented in a somewhat reimagined manner. What are the details for that and what other upcoming events have you planned and how can listeners contact you or view your work? My project, Where Are You Now?, is going to have a much more public-facing outcome a little bit later in the year. We're still working out the details, but if you want to learn more and also maybe read more of my work, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is Alumied, A-L-U-M-I-E-D. You can find a link in my bio there to all of my writing and feel free to get in touch. Yeah. And that was my conversation with Avro Medi, a writer, musician, and artist working across songwriting, artist interview, performance, poetry, and non-fiction writing genres, discussing his arts practice and influences, notions on cultural criticism in his writing, his recent Testing Grounds residency, pop music in the context of accessibility and accountability, and discussions on effectual modes of conversation. You can learn more about his work via his Instagram handle at Alumed, spelt A-L-U-M-I-E-D. You can read Paintings and Pop via doubting-writing.aka.melbourne and Two Twins via unprojects.org.au. Thank you to Avram Medi for taking the time to speak with me about his work and for introducing me to the concepts of cultural criticism and kitsch ethics. Crew in the Air wishes you the best for your ongoing and upcoming projects. If you have questions, comments, or complaints about today's program, contact us via queryintheair at gmail.com. Listen to our collection of podcasts and to today's program on demand for up to a week after initial broadcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash queryintheair. Also, 3CR's June Station Appeal kicked off on Monday. We are doing this in place of our usual annual Radiothon. We know many of you are doing it tough. So this is a call out for donations for those of you who can afford it. If you can, help 3CR continue broadcasting 24-7 during and beyond COVID-19 so we can keep providing a media space enabling progressive communities to voice ideas and build their power to create social change. To donate, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate to pay online. 
or call 03 9419 during business hours, Monday to Friday, 10am to 5pm, to pay by credit card. We hope you can show your support with a donation so that 3CR continues to be Melbourne's radical, independent and community-owned broadcaster. Up next is Black Femme hip-hop music show, Hip Sister Hop. But to end the program, you'll hear a track by Avram Mehdi that he performed in 2019 as part of an exhibition at ACCA called On Vulnerability and Doubt. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay safe and stay queer. Heavier homes, justice is a birthright if you're made right. And it was bold to be touched by your crying over canned soup. These bold blood rights are cold, promised from gold and air fryer, burning the roof down. John, John, a hinder, John, him, trying to turn a death hole into a glimmer. Truly, 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 it feels like making love through you. Maybe, 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 maybe. Waits untold, carry you alone, lifting up heavenly homes. And I was told we would be all alone, that's why I bought all these stones, all these hopeful stones, stones, all these hopeful stones, stones. All these hopeful stones. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.